If you have ever been part of our uh, Newcomers Sunday School class, uh, the one we've been doing for the last 10 or 12 years, the one that's called CNMA DNA, uh, you may recall a story that, that was told in one of the videos uh, about the brilliant physicist Albert Einstein. Uh, it seems that Einstein was, was walking along the campus of Princeton University one day when an aspiring PhD candidate came up to him, and this is a guy that was having all kinds of trouble trying to find out what to do his dissertation on or what he should write about. And so he went up to the brilliant physicist and he said, Dr. Einstein, what should I write about? What should I do for my dissertation? And uh, after considering the request for a moment, Einstein said, write about prayer. Somebody's got to find out about prayer. Kind of a bizarre answer, perhaps, coming from a physicist, but it, it's interesting to think that a man as brilliant and learned as Einstein would be so mystified by prayer and rather encouraging to think that he would take it seriously. But as Christians, as Christians, prayer is more than just a topic, right? It should be. I mean, it's, it's one of the most critical elements of our lives. After all, what is, what is the Christian life but an ongoing vital relationship with the God who has saved us by His grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus? And what is a relationship without communicating, right? Prayer is vital to us. Prayer is, is our, our, our life's breath in a lot of ways. Prayer is how we talk to our Father, our Lord, our friend, our Savior, our Counselor. It's how we communicate with Him. We would have no spiritual life at all without prayer. And yet, just like with Einstein, prayer remains a little bit mysterious to us, doesn't it? How should we pray? What should we pray for? What what posture should we use in prayer? Is it okay to pray for some things but not for other things? Does God always hear our prayers? Whose prayers does God hear? What guidelines does God give us for praying? What promises does He make about prayer, and how are we supposed to take those promises? Under what circumstances is God more likely to say yes to our prayer requests? How important is faith? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Now, you may be pretty certain on the answers to some of those questions and some of the other questions you might say, yeah, good question. Now, we're not going to answer every question and solve every mystery today, but as we continue our study in the book of James, we're going to find out that prayer is a topic that he returns to repeatedly throughout this book. And he speaks to us in his usual um, blunt, straightforward manner. We've titled this series, Don't Get the Wrong Idea. Don't get the wrong idea, and it's very obvious from the repeated emphasis that James has in this letter on prayer that he does not want us to get the wrong idea about prayer. So, our first passage is here in chapter 1, as it will be every week, because James really deals with all of his themes here in the first chapter. Then we'll look at a, we're going to look at a passage over in chapter 4, and then we'll finish up in chapter 5. But as for chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 5 to 8, so let's head there now. James 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. When it, when it comes to you and I having a proper understanding of prayer. The first thing James wants to make sure that we don't get the wrong idea about is this. He doesn't want us to get the wrong idea about the character of the God that we're praying to. 
He doesn't want us to get the wrong idea about the character of the God to whom we are praying. Now, why do I say that? Well, sometimes you read these verses and we get hung up on the kind of negative language at the end of of what I just read there, right? And we gloss over the incredibly positive way in which James opens it up. Did you notice that? He uses uses two expressions here in verse 5, right in that first verse here, to refer to God. And these are participles used as adjectives for those who are into those kinds of things. They are not describing what God does. They are describing who God is and what He's like. And there are two expressions here that describe what God is like. He is, first of all, generous. He is a generous God. Literally, He is a, he is a generous giving God. And second, He is not, if you have an NIV, I think it says He is not fault-finding. ESV says He is not reproachful. That might be the better translation. It's not the kind of God He is. In other words, God, by His very nature, loves it when you pray. He loves it when you, His child, if you're a believer in Jesus, He loves you when you come to Him and you ask Him for things. In fact, He even loves answering your prayers. He is inclined to do so. It's what He wants to do. He is not a stingy God. God is not a stingy God. He is not like you and I are sometimes with our kids. You know, when they pester us over and over again for something, can we go to Dairy Queen? Can we go to Dairy Queen? Can we go to Dairy Queen? Can we please go to Dairy Queen? Fine, yes, all right, we'll go to Dairy Queen. Stop bothering me. That's, that's not God's attitude. He's the opposite of that. Do you ever wonder, maybe because of some other relationships that you've been in your life, whether God will sometimes respond to a prayer of yours by saying something like this, what? How dare you ask for that? Don't you know any better than to ask for that? What is wrong with you? No, God is the opposite of that. He doesn't scold us. He doesn't belittle us. He doesn't find fault with those who come to Him in need. And this is especially so when we come to Him asking for wisdom, which is what the request is here in verse 5, wisdom. Do you remember back in the Old Testament, there was a place where a young king was coming to the throne, and God went to that young king, a guy by the name of Solomon, and said, look, I'll give you whatever you ask for in prayer. What would you like? One thing. What did Solomon ask for? He said, I want wisdom. I need wisdom to be able to lead this great people of yours. And God was so pleased with the request that Solomon made for wisdom that he threw in a whole lot of other things as well. Remember that? God is obviously a big fan of this prayer for wisdom. So what is wisdom? What is wisdom? I've heard two really good definitions for wisdom. One is this, that wisdom is not just knowledge, it's related to knowledge, but it goes beyond mere knowledge in that it is the ability to use your knowledge for godly and righteous purposes. So the ability to use knowledge for the right purposes. The other uh, definition I like goes like this, that wisdom is what you need to make godly decisions at times when the Bible does not give you a direct answer to the question you are asking. So those are two both very good definitions, and in fact, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think we can probably meld them together to make one big mega definition. But but certain questions, if you think about it, certain questions in your life do not require wisdom. They don't require any wisdom at all. Should I cheat on my spouse? Should I cheat on my taxes? Should I lie on my resume? Should I marry an unbeliever if I'm a Christian? Should I read God's Word regularly? Okay, so 
No, 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 yes. Any questions? But there are certain questions that are kind of different, right? Whom should I marry? What job should I apply for? What is the most loving way to provide for my aging parents? Should I send my kids to public school, Christian school, homeschool them? Should I say something to my adult child about this particular issue, or is it better this time around to keep my opinions to myself and wait for another time? What steps should our church take to try to reach people of our community for Christ? Now, Scripture is going to probably shed some light on these issues, right? But you, you will search in vain for chapter and verse that will tell you directly what to do in those circumstances and how to apply the Bible to that particular situation. So what you require is wisdom. You need wisdom. And, and the good news is that God is more than willing to give it to you. Isn't that great? But the next question is this that James needs us to ask. The question is, okay, what are we going to do after we've received this input from God. And here's where we get into the idea of doubt, as James calls it in verse 6. I think sometimes when we think about faith and doubt, we get the idea that if we just, if we just believe something hard enough, if we just get our faith meter up to a certain level, maybe like 72 or 73, then our prayer will actually work. You know, kind of like believing hard enough to get Santa's sleigh off the ground. You know, believing in fairies strongly enough to get Tinkerbell's light glowing again, if you've ever seen like the, the play version of Peter Pan. Is that what doubt and faith have to do with? James tells us here that doubt is a little different than that. In fact, doubt, doubt is not merely a lack of intensity in our, of our belief or a lack of certainty at some isolated moment in time. No, James says doubt goes deeper than that. It actually goes to your character. It goes to the character of a person. There is a type of person, James says, who doubts. It's what he does not just in the moment, but as a habit. And he describes this person in verses 7 to 8 as unstable and double-minded. Well, what is he double-minded about? What is he doubting? I'll tell you what he's doubting. He's doubting that he can trust God. He's doubting that he can trust God. Don't forget, in the New Testament, faith and trust are the exact same word. This is a person who may ask God for wisdom, but at some level, at some level, he doubts the trustworthiness of God. Maybe he doubts God's power. Maybe he doubts God's goodness. Maybe he doubts what James says here about God, that God is actually generous and gracious and wants to help. So he thinks that maybe God has to be bought off or manipulated in some way. And so he comes to God with that attitude. But wherever the disconnect is, it results in a lack of trust. And a lack of trust results in a lack of willingness to obey God without reservation. Because that's what faith is. It is an attitude of your heart that results in obedience. So when this person goes to God asking for wisdom, what he's really saying is something like this, God, I would like to get your input on this situation. What, what do you have to say, God, about my predicament, about, about my decision that I have here? And then when he gets God's answer, he will take it under consideration and perform a cost-benefit analysis to see whether he should do things God's way or his way. Because he's not fully convinced that God is for him, and he's not fully convinced that God really wants what's best 
in his life. And as a result, half of him is following Jesus, and the other half is following his own heart, his own wits, and his own calculations. That's why James calls him double-minded. The word literally means having two souls or two psyches. It's like you're living a double life. He's trying to walk two diverging paths at the same time, and they're not going in the, right, the same direction. We forget sometimes that, that God is not into giving second opinions, or for that matter, having you seek a second opinion after you've talked to Him. He wants you to trust Him, not use Him as a resource. So James says, why would you expect to hear from God or to get wisdom from God when you've got that kind of attitude? Do you really think that God is going to play that kind of game with you? So Christian, Christian, if you need God's wisdom this morning about a particular matter, and I know many of us do, don't hesitate to ask Him. Don't hesitate to ask. He's your Father, He loves you, and He's committed to your best interests. He really cares. He really wants the right thing for you. He will, you can trust Him that He will guide you in the right direction. He may, he has lots of things He may do. He may send you to a certain Bible passage and, and reveal to you by the Holy Spirit how that passage applies to you at this very moment. He may send you a Christian brother or sister who's been through where you are and can share some valuable advice with you. He may even send someone to you with a special word for you that he impresses upon their heart about you. Or the Holy Spirit may give you a powerful impression of some kind as you're praying. But you can only expect that to happen if you're really asking. You know what I mean. Not if you're just doing a survey and asking God for his position. Because that's not the posture of someone who actually trusts in God, a God who is generous, a God who is not stingy, a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. But let's go on and look at prayer from another angle, and to do that, we're going to look at James 4. So go to James 4. We're just going to read the first nine verses here. It may go farther than that, I'm not sure. James 4, 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Tell us what you really think, James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded Let's stop there before we get convicted. James is obviously dealing with more than one issue here. We'll come back to that pride and humility and willfulness thing uh, later on, I'm sure. But for now, I want you to notice how James brings prayer into this. First, he says, you have not because you ask not. Now, that is a justifiably famous verse, and we're going to come back to it in a few minutes. But for now, look at why James says sometimes we don't get answers even at times when we pray. Did you notice that? Why? It's because of our motives. Because of our motives. Part of not getting the wrong idea about prayer is, is remembering 
that motives matter. James says they really do. It matters what your motives are when you pray. James says, look, you aren't getting what you asked for because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's very interesting sounding, right? It almost sounds like we've moved here from asking for wisdom to asking for money that we could spend, which could in fact be the case. And it almost sounds like James is saying, look, if God gives you the money that you're asking for, you're just going to take it to the casino or the liquor store or the brothel, you know? So why would he answer your prayer? I don't think that's necessarily exactly what James is saying. He may be using the idea of money in, in a more general sense, and metaphor. James is also uh, someone who tends to put things in the strongest possible language. It's possible that his congregation is not actually murdering one another in verse 2. And James may be taking part in some literary exaggeration, like when we say to each other, hey, I've told you a million times, that kind of thing. James is also very familiar, we find out in many places in this book, he's very familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, and he may even be referring to how Jesus puts hatred and slander and vicious ridicule in the same classification as actual murder in that sermon. But what James is saying, if, if we put it in our language, here's what James is saying to us people. He's saying, y'all are at each other's throats. And it's because you're in competition for worldly things. That's what's going on. Remember, James's readers are mostly Jewish Christians, many of whom probably came from Jerusalem and Judea, and they, they had to leave because of persecution. And, and now they find themselves immersed in a Greek culture that takes affluence and pleasure very seriously. This is new to them. Some of them may find that they have money for the first time. Some of them are now newly aware for the first time that they don't have money, but some other people do. So along with all the other various illicit pleasures of the flesh that the Greek culture would afford them, envy and jealousy are going to be part of that. They're going to be constant temptations. So in verse 3 when it says, spend it on your passions, it could be more literally translated, spend it in your passions. So this is not necessarily about purchasing a particular item. It's more about what realm you're living in. What are your values? James is asking. What are, what are your priorities? How, how can you people be getting so bent out of shape about money and worldly goods? And this is where I think that their experience intersects a lot with ours. We may do well to ask ourselves the same question. What realm are we praying in? I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for something like relief from pain or for financial provision for ourselves or our families. Of course, we should pray for those things, but is that maybe too often where our prayers stop? Jesus gave us a very clear pattern of prayer. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and then give us this day our daily bread. In other words, God, we're, we need to walk this kingdom path. We're trying to do your will. We're, we're on mission for you, God. And so, and so we, we're going to need, as we walk this kingdom path, we're going to need some supplies. Provide for us as we follow you. In the very same chapter, Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things, your food, your clothing, your shelter, you name it, that will all be added to you. So let me ask you, as I often have to ask myself, are your prayer priorities upside down? Are your prayers upside down? Are you, are you consumed with getting your own worldly needs met and only once in a while you pray for God's kingdom to advance in your life or the lives of your family or your friends or your community or your nation or the world? 
Are not these eternal things ultimately more important than the temporary blessings that often take up the vast majority of our prayer time? Are we not on mission for God? So that our prayers for worldly goods are, are valid, but they're, they're largely just a matter of asking for adequate supplies for the mission? That's what I think Jesus means when he says, seek first his kingdom. I read something about the persecuted church around the world almost every day. I've got some magazines I read through, and I read the stories. And when I, when I encounter the stories of these faithful, suffering brothers and sisters, some of whom end up getting killed for their faith, it never fails to amaze me how seldom they ask for prayer from relief from the persecution. They almost never ask for that, which is weird because I would think that's what I'd be asking for all the time. But when they ask for prayer, they ask for prayer for courage, for boldness to speak the gospel, and often even for God to move in the hearts of the people that are killing them. Jesus said in John 15, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then it goes on and says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus here explicitly ties the promise of answered prayer to the activity of bearing fruit for God in the lives of others and in our life. Because that's what gets God's heart beating. That's what gets God excited. That's what brings God glory, Jesus says. And James is not afraid to call us out when our desires for comfort and pleasure and the good life outstrip our desire to be more like Jesus, our desire to see other people come to Christ, and our desire to see God's name lifted up in our world. Do our motives matter when it comes to prayer? James says, yeah. They really do. They really do. But let's go back to that verse that we kind of skipped over. You have not because you ask not. Great verse. Why? Because it clearly tells us something, right? That prayer makes a difference. It makes a difference. For those of us who have a very robust understanding of the sovereignty of God, we know that God's in charge, that God has determined everything, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. there's always a temptation for us to default to saying, well, God already knows what He's going to do. He decided what He was going to do before time began, so what difference will my prayer make? You know what that's called? That's called making theology an excuse for spiritual laziness. It is not up to me to figure out how God works my prayers into His plan. It is up to me to obey him when he tells me to pray and to believe what the Holy Spirit tells me here in James 4.2, which is there are things that don't happen in this world simply because God's people didn't pray for them. That's kind of a scary thought. There are things that don't happen in this world because we don't pray for them. Illnesses that are not healed but could have been. Problems that are not solved but should have been. Churches that are not mobilized. Disciples that are not made. Missionaries that are not sent. Souls that are not saved. But let's look at the other side of that. What can happen when God's people do pray? Go over to chapter 5. James has kind of a nice catch-all section at the end here, starting in verse 13. Let's just read 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My dad found out recently that he has a big cyst on his spinal column that has to be surgically removed. And for many days, uh, he was in, in constant pain. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't find a comfortable position. And I was talking to him, and I said, Dad, we'll put you on the prayer list. And so our, our church staff and our Wednesday night crowd and a couple of others of you started praying for his pain to go away. Well, I talked to him on the phone earlier this week on Tuesday. The pain went away. Now, at this point, he still needs the operation, but he no longer hurts all the time, only when he's, you know, bending in certain directions. So, and nothing else was done. That's all we did was pray. I told Dad, I said, you know, this is probably just people praying, you know that. He said, yeah, I, I agree. So now I've started praying just for God to go ahead and heal him. I mean, <laughs> who needs a back operation at 82? I still praise and thank God when things like that happen, but over time I am becoming less and less surprised. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. For you King Jamesers, it availeth much. Amen. <laughs> James notes here that Elijah prayed. Elijah prayed, and the weather pattern in the Middle East was changed for three years and six months. And then he reminds us that the only difference between Elijah and us is our hairstyle. Unless you're Pastor Wes, in which case it's the same hairstyle. But let me just close by, let me put these verses in their context, which is really this whole passage from verse 13 to 18 here in, in chapter 5. James is like, look, are you happy? Are you sad? Are you sick? Are you suffering? He says, look, whatever situation you find yourself in, turn to God. Whether in praise, in prayer, in grief, whatever the situation is, what James is describing here is what you might call a life-lived God word. A life lived with our focus not on our problems, not on our pleasures, not even on our blessings, but on the all-powerful, loving, saving God who is over all of these things. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble and also in times of joy. He's always there for you, and He's always with you. One of the most famous stories of faith and doubt is, is over in Matthew chapter 14, which is where Jesus comes to the disciples walking on the water in the storm, and, and Peter decides he wants to get out of the boat and walk on the water with Jesus. And it says that Peter succeeded for a while, but then it said that when he saw the waves... That's when he began to sink. Now, it wasn't as if Peter, this is not what was happening. Peter was not going, I can walk on water. 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 I can, wait, I can't walk on water. You know, that isn't what happened. No, Peter started to sink when he took his eyes off Jesus and started concentrating on how big the waves were instead of how big Jesus' power and love for him were. Jesus was not, Peter was not doubting that he can walk on water. He knew he couldn't walk on water. But he was doubting at some level that Jesus was still there, that Jesus still cared, or most likely here that Jesus had the power to keep him afloat. 
Because it's not about whether or not Peter can walk on water. It's about who Jesus is and whether you can trust him. That's why Peter started out the right way by saying, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out to you on the water. I'll get out of the boat. Lord, if it's you, tell me anything. I'll do it. If it's you, it doesn't matter. And so it is with us when we come to God in prayer. It's not whether we have what it takes to call down His blessing. It's whether He has what it takes to help us, to heal us, to save us. Is He really there? Does He care? Is He powerful enough to keep you afloat? Can we trust Him? Let me leave you this morning with the verse I think I share with people more than any other verse that I share in my ministry. It's Romans 8.32. It simply says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who didn't spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? A God who is willing to give up his only son for you is willing to give you all things all the things you might need, all the wisdom that you require. How can we ever think for a millisecond that God is a stingy person when He's done something like that? There are so many benefits that flow from the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, righteousness, reconciliation with God and each other, healing, so many others. But here's another blessing that comes from the cross. The absolute assurance that God can be trusted in every conceivable situation you will ever face. Won't you place your faith in Him this morning for whatever need you have? Let's pray and then we'll, we'll sing and then we'll do communion.